0: Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 85. Great show this week. Very excited to speak with my guests. That's right two guests. You get two for the price of one because I kind of like to do this sort of a BOGO thing, you know, buy one, get one as far as guests go. Uh, but I guess this is free, so you're not really buying anything anyway. Uh, but I want to make my pitch for Counterpunch. That's the price you pay for getting these for free. You listen to me bloviate about the importance of alternative media on the left, the importance of countering the corporate media narratives, countering the bourgeois press for both in the United States and around the world, countering the sort of received truths and, and wisdom that the uh, alternative and pseudo-alternative media like to put out there as if they are, you know, not directly tied to the foundations, the corporate interests and Wall Street and all the rest of them, just like most of the corporate media. Then there's Counterpunch, a true alternative, a true outpost in the wilderness when it comes to defending, uh, you know, a, a real independent radical space on the left, online and in print. If you believe that Counterpunch is important, as I certainly do, consider getting a subscription to to the print magazine, it's a great way to support Counterpunch, it's a great way to get an excellent magazine in your mailbox every other month, columns and artwork, and you can really keep up with um, you know, a lot of the really cutting edge uh, uh, work being done by so many great people on the left so consider that, also if you like my work and you want to hear more of that, you can check out my other podcast Stop Imperialism Radio, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Eric a donation of one dollar a month gets you access to the podcasts, and uh, you can, of course, also listen to them for free, at least the uh, previews on YouTube. So please do check that out. You can go to my website, stopimperialism.org, and the Patreon page to find out more information, videos, podcasts, articles, a lot more coming. So uh, consider that as well. Anyway, let me turn to my uh, guests this week. I'm so excited to speak with them on a topic that is very timely and very, very important. I'm very uh, happy to introduce Rachel Boothroyd Rojas to the program. Program As well as Lucas Corner. Uh, Rachel and Lucas are both staff writers with Venezuela Analysis. They're based in Venezuela, or they're at least currently in Venezuela, and can give us some great insights into what's going on there. A lot of turmoil politically, but also economically and socially. There's a lot to unpack about what's happening in that country. So, Rachel, Lucas, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. So, um, you know, we're just going to kind of jump into it. And I think that uh, a good way, a good place to start would be to give people a little bit of an understanding of what's going on right now. Uh, we can we can get into the you know recent history that has brought us to this point a little bit later. But to bring people up to speed to right now, what is going on in the streets in Venezuela? What are the protests about who is leading the protests and what's the political context we should understand?
1: Yeah, I think to understand the latest um, round of this very intense political standoff, you have to go back to April, where you saw a Supreme Court ruling, which empowered the judiciary to assume the functions, particularly in the context of the Venezuela's National Assembly has to approve all international oil agreements. So there was a basically a joint venture with the Russian state firm Rosneft that had to be approved. That the National Assembly. Is currently declared null and void by Venezuela's Supreme Court, and this you know basically goes back to the fact that there are set three legislators from the opposition bloc who have have been accused of election fraud in the 2015 elections, and you know they were ordered to be unseated, how and they were unseated in January 2016, but then they were subsequently reinstated in July 2016, and since then the National Assembly has been declared, you know, basically um, null and void un, un, until they comply with that ruling. So it's kind of it's a very basically it's a very legalistic standoff. But the, the reality is to break it down clearly is that you know there's there's there are two different projects in which since the National Assembly was elected in early 2016, it has you know declared its goal ousting Maduro. We can unpack that. And meanwhile, you know the government wants to continue with its existing project, and those two things are incompatible, and then this has taken in the form of different legalistic clashes and this has come to a head at the beginning of April in which the the, the Supreme Court came out with this ruling, which um, was subsequently reversed the, um, the and also, and as well as attorney general came out and said that it was a rupture of the constitutional order. it was reversed. Yet the opposition took to the streets from April 4th onwards and called for the Supreme Court to be on the Supreme Court justice to be unseated. And those demands gradually escalated over the course of the week, even to a point that on April 9th, the opposition, the vice president of the National Assembly was saying that national that regional elections, which were postponed from last year and respect for the National Assembly or the reinstatement of its powers are not enough. And that, quote unquote, you know, uh, while we have people in the streets, you know, we have to push for more, you know, in other words. Um, so basically the opposition is now at the point where today they did the, the statement they just published for the March, the May Day March, there's two a March for the government, pro-government March, uh, workers March, and there's also an opposition March today. And in, the, in their flyer for their March, they have called for general elections, a presidential, basically presidential elections one year ahead of schedule, which is not constitutional. So that's kind of the conflict so far, Um, and as we have reported and as it's been reported in mainstream media, these violent protests have cost 32 lives. Um, At least 10 of those are the result um, directly in nine cases, indirectly in one case, of the the protesters themselves. Um, Five of them are the, the result of security forces, and there have been indictments in various of those cases. But there's a lot of unpacking to do there. But that's kind of like a lowdown down what we've seen so far.
0: Yeah. Now, I want to ask you, uh, before we get into uh, some of the politics behind this and, and what's really driving this, uh, there was another question um, that was really kind of looming large throughout the course of 2016, really since the uh, December 2015 legislative elections, which just to give people the background, was the first time that the right wing had won uh, electoral victory since Chavez had really come to power in 1999. Uh, so it was was a really momentous moment in 2015. And since then, there's also been a lot of talk about recall of Maduro, uh, removing him from office by a recall. That was a major push by the opposition. There was legal wrangling around that. So it seems like, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the opposition, by calling for new elections, is basically trying to backdoor a recall.
2: Yeah, I mean, this, like Lucas said, the opposition's strategy or its goal, since it really, you know, came to power uh, in the National Assembly when it took its majority there in December 2015, has been to aus Maduro. You know, that is basically what it's um, what it's tried to do um, consistently since then. Um, and it's not always been um, in a coherent way because the opposition is quite divided. So. For instance, uh, last year they tried, um, for instance, to um, retrospectively cut short Maduro's presidential term. Um, they proposed that, you know, um, as a legislative um, amendment from the National Assembly, which was of course thrown out by the Supreme Court because it's totally unconstitutional. Uh, they tried other um, initiatives, like you talk about the recall referendum. There was actually, um, you know, one weekend last year when Maduro was. Out of the country on a presidential tour, and they actually tried to um, proclaim that the president had abandoned his position uh, in his absence. So there's all these kind of um, different strategies which the you know which the opposition has tried to, um to, to you know to, to use in order to oust Maduro over the past uh, year, and this latest um you know attempt to kind of oust Maduro is is just a continuation um, of that really um, what we've seen over the past year. Um, Yeah. So, you know, like you said, this is just um, this is just an attempt to basically get Maduro out. I don't know. I I wouldn't say it's by the back door because we have um, very kind of violent (laughs) statements from the opposition leaders uh, calling for their supporters to take to the streets, uh, to continue to take to the streets. This is despite the fact that, like Lucas said, there's been 32 deaths. Uh, And 10 of those deaths have been caused by um, the opposition protesters. Um, For instance, last Monday, um, you know, state media reported what they've called a massacre of government workers in in Merida. And this was, um, you know, several government workers were were injured um, and two were killed by sniper fire in Merida. Um, And this is when the opposition organized what they called a national sit in. Um, and so these yeah so these you know these government workers lost their lives, you know, I think anywhere else in you know in the world, if that happens, then you know the next day the opposition would call the you know, their, you know if this was a peaceful opposition, they would call their supporters off the streets in order to de escalate the situation that 's not what this opposition uh, has done in fact, you know we see leaders from the you know the hard right um Popular will parties such as Freddie Guevara calling on um, their supporters to, uh, you know, heat up the streets to not get tired. Uh, we'll only lose if you know if you know if we get tired. Also calling on people um, on their supporters to use non-traditional methods against the government. Um, Today, we've seen, again, another hard right leader, Maria Corina Machado. She has literally, uh, you know, in an op-ed published uh, last night, uh, she literally says the objective is not to carry out elections. Um, The objective is to put an end to this you know to put, put an end to this regime so you can kind of see that you know this isn't by the back door because this is these are literally kind of the demands that the opposition leaders are making publicly you know some are calling for general elections you know like lucas said which is over a year ahead um of the scheduled general elections um but some opposition leaders are basically call, calling for the government to be deposed by uh, any means necessary basically
0: Right, absolutely, I agree. I just, using the phrase backdoor only in the sense that, uh, they attempted and failed to implement, to, to use the, uh, the recall clause in the constitution via, uh, you know, legal means. And so it seems like this is kind of their alternative path, uh, not a recall necessarily, but basically a removal from office. But yes, I certainly agree. Now, I want to ask you very quickly, we have a corporate media in the United States as well as in Venezuela and throughout the region that really describes the situation. Situation There as essentially violent crackdowns by the government against peaceful protesters. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody who's well versed in imperial propaganda. But can you unpack a little bit for us a uh, the sort of flimsiness of that narrative and then b help people to understand just how controlled even the Venezuelan media is by the uh, rich elites of the, uh, you know, of the owner class.
2: Yeah, I I mean, if we start kind of with your your last point about Venezuelan media, I mean, there is this narrative on Venezuela that all media is, is controlled by the government and nothing could be farther from the truth. I think anyone who's recently been in Venezuela can attest um to that fact um so you have state uh, media um which is generally very pro government and then you have a vast array of kind of private media um in you know who have websites um and who also have print press um newspapers such as Venevision um such as um El Universal El Nacional and these are all very very anti government um, and they 've been basically um parroting the opposition line right the way throughout um you know these past thirty days of protests um including for instance when the opposition uh, whenever there 's a death um as we 've seen over the past month, the opposition will come straight out and it will claim that the government is to blame um you know so um And then this is just parroted by, you know, the private media as well. Um, And then that is in turn parroted by the international mainstream press. And they do this without actually um, waiting for the necessary investigations into the death, um, to the deaths to be carried out. Um, So just to give you an example of this, um, last Wednesday, there was a, a young man called Juan Pernalete, who was an opposition protester here in Caracas. Um, and he was reported to have been, uh, injured and then died in one of the protests and he was pronounced dead in hospital. Now, the opposition immediately took to social media to say that, that he'd been, um, killed because of, um, a, of tear gas, um, which had hit him in the chest and caused a hematoma. Um, so, uh, and obviously this was the, you know, the version that was, you know, uh, again, kind of repeated en masse by the mainstream media and the private media in Venezuela. Um, so it's since turns out, now that the investigations have begun into his death, there was an autopsy, um, which um, which suggested that he was killed by a pistol actually used to kill cattle. Um, they found no, um, and they also, there's also a video of him which shows kind of, it's very kind of sketchy video, but it shows that there were no kind of security um, Security personnel in the vicinity when he was killed, and it shows two um, what appeared to be uh, fellow protesters, kind of in a bit of uh, not a skirmish, but there's something that you can't see going on. And then he's taken um, by these two men over to the entrance of some high-rise buildings in Altamira in the eastern park of Caracas, and he's just basically left there to die. And so this video has emerged. The results of the autopsy have emerged, uh, and even the uh, you know the mayor of um, Chacao has even you know admitted that. Now that it's very, very improbable, if not impossible, that this young man was killed by security forces. Obviously, this isn't what we see when we go to the mainstream media. All we see is the opposition's initial um, initial kind of prognosis that, you know, security forces are to blame. And this is the entire narrative we've seen uh, from the mainstream media uh, throughout the past month. They, they've not um, done any homework or any, any investigation into, you know, who is responsible for the, the majority of the deaths so far. Uh, like Luca said, we've been um, we actually put together um, kind of a, uh, a record of all of these deaths so far. And to date, only five have been attributed to um, security personnel. Uh, and in, in four of those cases, um, no, sorry, in five of those cases, there have been arrest warrants released by the public prosecution, uh, and four have been arrests. So that we've also seen, um, you know, an arrest warrant issued for 15 soldiers in relation to one of the deaths, and uh, I think three police officers have been, you know, arrested and indicted um, for homicide So, you know, you can see that this this narrative doesn't correspond to what we're seeing in the mainstream media, which is, like I said, just totally and uncritically parroting, um, you know, the opposition line. We see people like the leader of. Um, uh, First Justice Henrique Capriles uh, came out on social media today and said that the government is responsible for 30. This is a lie. You know, this is a total lie. And anyone who looks into individual cases will see that the, that's not the case. And that actually, you know, a large part of the deaths, at least, you know, a third of them uh, have so far been attributed to opposition uh, violence. And, you know, this is it quite a array of um, different kind of violent tex- techniques used here. Um, in fact, last um and the government's march uh, on April 19th, there was a, you know, a prominent sociologist um, and a professor and also a, columnar, a columnist for El Nacional, which is one of the private papers, which I mentioned, who actually called um, for people to um, vent kind of their anger against like uh, the government militia. Neutralize. To neutralize. Yeah. Uh-huh. That was the specific term that he used. And he said, if each of us neutralizes, you know, a Chavista militia member, then we can take them on that way and they'll be neutralized. And he said, even throwing flower pots will do. So basically calling on people to throw things out of their, you know, out of their windows to hit Chavistas. And what we saw on the 19th is that um, there was a nurse who was on her way to work and she was in the vicinity of the Chavista march and she was hit by a glass bottle uh, filled with frozen water thrown from a high-rise building. Um, and it hit her in the head. And, it, it, you know, very, very, um, very horrible um, kind of photos have been circulating of that, internet on, uh, of that incident on social media. And she was in a critical condition for three days. And then she later, unfortunately, passed away. But these are kind of the violent acts that the, you know, that the opposition are are calling for. Um, And and these are some of the ways in which people um, have been have been killed. There was also a, you know, a 14 year old um, boy, um, Brian Principal in Lara. uh, And he was killed after, you know, um, opposition sympathizers fired on one of the government housing um, projects that are sent, set up for basically working class poor people to provide them with, you know, with homes. Um, and, and um, you know, they see uh, these housing projects as a symbol of Chavismo, of the revolution. Um, and they basically, they, they outside the housing project, um, they're basically residents, opposition sympathizers from nearby high rise private buildings who tried to barricade the streets. Um, the residents from the government housing project tried to remove them. And uh, basically this led to a bit of a standoff, uh, which was, you know, uh, the, the the opposition sympathizers responded in a very violent way. They opened fire against the government uh, housing project. And uh, Brian Principal was, was shot um, as he was trying to leave the scene. Um, so, you know, so... The, you know, the, the, these things are not being revealed in the press at all. This is not what we're seeing. This is not the narrative in the mainstream media in the slightest. Like you say. If I could just
1: add one thing. I think it's very interesting in the case of Tulio Hernandez that, you know, this man, this sociology professor and prominent newspaper columnist. And, you know, so he was recently dismissed from one of his positions at the head of a public relations um, capacity in a, in a um, bank but he still remain, He retains his columnist position. He retains his university professorship. In any other country, you know, he would be stri- He would be publicly, you know, humiliated. You know, at the minimum, stripped of his, you know, different uh, jobs and honors, and perhaps even subjected to criminal prosecution. Yet at the same, you know, given that the state of impunity, and given, you know, given that, you know, you see the, you know, prominent newspapers like El Nacional, like El Universal. If I go to any kiosk. In Caracas or any part of Venezuela, the majority of the newspapers are going to be anti government. There's no, there's no doubt about that. You know, in the, despite all of this, you know, Nicolas Casey can still say that, you know, there's a dictatorship, that there's no, there's no freedom of press, that all of these newspapers are controlled by the government, et cetera, et cetera. When the reality is, you know, you actually see attacks on journalists, you know, who attempt to report opposition violence. And there actually is a situation of impunity in which these people can call for violent acts with, you know, total, without any consequences whatsoever
0: yes indeed now I want to ask a question kind of synthesizing a lot of what you what you were both uh, alluding to just now uh, those of us who follow Venezuela regularly and who have for a number of years certainly uh, in hearing these descriptions can't help but think of 2014 and perhaps even especially 2002 uh, as a reminder 2002 was the attempted coup against Hugo Chavez I remember seeing the uh, you know unknown unidentified people with uh, with rifles with handguns shooting and killing and blaming it on the government we saw that in 2002 we saw that again in 2014 we've seen barricades and molotov cocktails and attacks on government workers and attacks on the elderly and so forth we've seen that throughout so what i want to ask is to what extent is what's happening on the streets now a parallel or uh you know a throwback to what we saw in 2014 and in 2002 or are there very clear and obvious differences
1: I think the the first, you know, the the broad continuity, you know, as Rachel alluded to uh, prior, is that, you know, this is simply, you know, just the repeat of, you know, this is the culmination of 18 years of opposition efforts to depose this government, you know, by force. You know, I mean, this is just the reality that, you know, the opposition has never been democratic and, you know, it has continually, you know, from the get go sought to. Um, oust first Hugo Chavez, you know, in 2002 and, you know, subsequently Nicolás Maduro, you know, to uh, I think emphasize that point, remember that Enrique Capriles, who was the presidential candidate against Nicolás Maduro in in 2013 after the death of Chavez, he refused to recognize the results of that election, even though it was, it was internationally validated by all um, election observers And, and the, the, the margin of victory was actually you – know, I think it was 0.5 percent, but it was, it was greater than the margin of victory in many you know, international elections, including I think you know, at least um, Bush-Gore um, in 2000. So I – yet he refused to reckon – and he called his supporters to go out to discharge their anger in the streets, quote-unquote, which led to eight people being killed and you know, government medical clinics being bombed. You, know, you saw the same thing. You know, the United States actually refused to recognize, you know, Maduro as president of Venezuela, I believe, for you know, at least six months, if it wasn't more, after that date. <clears throat> and then following the victory of Chavismo in the, uh, the December um, 2013 municipal elections, once again, you, which was cited by Capriles as a plebiscite on Chavismo and Chavismo won a, a resounding victory. You know, you had the Guarimba, the Guanimba protests or known as the exit in which, you know, basically you saw the violent upsurge of the upper middle classes within eastern Caracas, northern Valencia and other parts of the country that explicitly had as their objective ousting Maduro, you know, in reaction to the fact that, you know, Chavismo had just won at at the ballot box once again. And that they were stripped of any real capacity to um, oust the government by legal means. So that that's that's the continuity, and we can unpack all of that. But I do think that there is an important change in the sense that definitely the socioeconomic conditions are not the same, and the geopolitical conditions are not the same. So I mean, begin the 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 so- social economic crisis that really has been triggered by the collapse of global oil prices since late 2014 which have lost around 75% of their value, falling from you know an average of um, $80 a barrel in 2014 to, you know, it was around $30 a barrel, I think, um, last year and, you know, expected to be like $40 a barrel this year. You know, for a country like Venezuela, it depends upon, you know, at least over 90% of its export earnings on its dollar earnings for oil. You know, that's a massive dent to, you know, its economy. And that has had serious consequences. Obviously, there's a lot of other factors that we can also discuss later on, but you know that's that's a key you know factor here. There's there's clearly you know very there's a level of precarity that's currently you know at play that's definitely motivating people from lower classes to participate in the protests, though not anywhere near you know the level you know obviously largely reduced numbers and not anywhere like the media is portraying it to be. Mostly concentrated in certain zones and mainly from you know very precarious, more you know traditionally quote unquote lumpen proletariat kinds of actions where we have focals of you know violent looting and vandalism. Many of which are condemned by the, the very opposition leadership because you know for them it's fine to kill Chavistas but to you know start looting and burning private property. You know, clearly that's heretical. And I think that the second point, the second difference that we're seeing now is that the geopolitical situation is. Completely different, and that you know, in 2014, you had the strong support of Dilma Rousseff in Brazil, you know, and prior, of course, you know, under Chavez, you had the support of Lula, you know, as a key ally. You know, um, right after the 2013 elections, it was really Brazil that played an indispensable role in um, backing the uh, democratically elected Maduro government against us, and the, the refusal of the United States to recognize the results of election and in 2014. Similarly, there was also, you know, the strong backing by the Brazilian government. And you also, you know, Argentina, you still had, you know, Kershner and Argentina, you still had very strong, you know, left-wing or progressive governments in the region that were backing Venezuela. This is not the case anymore. Venezuela, you know, increasingly has lost many important regional allies. And, you know, that has, I would say, has given, as a result, the opposition smells blood. And they believe that, you know, they, the conditions are there in which they can, you know, I provoke or uh, a U.S. intervention, more direct U.S. intervention to topple the government. What form that might take or, you know, what success that might have, you know, obviously it can only be speculated upon. But, you know, I think that that's the key change. I don't know if you have anything to add on that, Rachel.
2: You know, I totally agree. I think you can see just by looking at the, you know, what's happened in the OAS that Venezuela has been increasingly isolated. Um, you know, by Washington, by Canada, by the the Temer government, um, you know, Mauricio Macri, there is a sustained campaign there, um, you know, to ostracize Venezuela. Um, and that's made, you know, a huge difference um, to, um, to Venezuela and how it can navigate this crisis. And also the economic crisis, you know, if you look at um, kind of trade deals um, before, um, for instance, before Macri came to power, the Venezuela imported goods, um, under preferential terms from both Brazil and Argentina. And Macri came in and, you know, he could, you know, a lot, you know, he just canceled all kind of diplomatic relations, not diplomatic relations, but, um, you know, all these kind of trade deals with um, with Venezuela. And so, um, you know, this is, you know, like Lucas said, this has had a huge uh, impact on, on Venezuela.
1: Likewise, I think just to add to that point that um, you see that Venezuela's suspension from Mercosur, um, at the behest of um, the Macri government in Argentina. Also, basically, after the toppling of Rousseff in Brazil, you saw, you know, literally the rise of the triple alliance of Macri, the, you know, uh, government, the, um, the right-wing government in Paraguay, which was also came to power as a result of a coup indirectly, and uh, the, the, uh, the ouster of um, Lugo in 2011. And then, you know, obviously the... Um, the, the tamar coup regime in brazil so i mean clearly venezuela is also at, is isolated in other these uh, and other internets as well
0: that's right and uh one of the one of the lesser known aspects of this is the fact that uh well with both uh, Temer and the Temer government in Brazil, as well as the Macri government in Argentina. These are both directly connected to Goldman Sachs. I mean, we can make direct connections, including people in top cabinet-level positions. Uh, we can point to a number of other factors, including deep connections to various uh, Wall Street operators, the Koch brothers, many others of the right wing in the United States. So I think that we should uh, on the one hand have that regional perspective that you're talking about, but on the other hand, keep in mind that none of this would be possible were it not for Wall Street, Washington and the U.S. broadly.
1: I think that's a that's an important point that I think is made a lot in Venezuela that we're, you know, we're used to talking about the Brazilian right or the Venezuelan right or the U.S. right or the Mexican right. But the reality is that there is an increasing integration of these right wing forces, you know, throughout the region. And, you know, that's something that, you know, we're beginning to understand and systematize and track and you know, I think that, for example, the, the very close relationship between the Venezuelan right and Alvaro Uribe, who is the, you know, the godfather of the Colombian paramilitary right. And, you know, they that there was a famous the Mexican fiesta in which um, Alvaro Uribe met with a number of Venezuelan opposition leaders in Mexico and other leaders. And, you know, in fact, if you just look at the ex-presidents who have been pushing hardest the regime change effort against um, uh, Maduro and accusing the government of human rights abuses. I mean, you can just look at their resumes. I mean, you have Álvaro Uribe, you have Sebastián Piñera, you have um, uh, Calderón in Mexico, you have Vicente Fox, you have, you know, you basically had this list of these, you know, these human rights abusers who accuse Venezuela of human rights abuses, which is not absolutely, you know, in any, if you had any kind of objective media, this would be called out.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, um, alright. I guess it's uh, about time for a break. So why don't we take a break? Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about some of the economics of this crisis, the economic war that is being waged against Venezuela, how that works, the role of the elites in perpetuating that. Uh, I want to talk about, uh, what was just mentioned, Alvaro Uribe, the Colombian, uh, role in all of this, the paramilitaries, that, and a whole lot more. Come back. Uh, you're listening to Counterpunch Radio chatting with Rachel Boothroyd Rojas and with uh, Lucas Corner. We'll be right back.
3: Y a partir de este momento es prohibido Compañero Hugo Chávez Presente La Revolución Bolivariana Presente Let's go Caracas and in Chicago, yo, in the South Bronx. Bronx. worldwide. I can't front, I'm a that they took our building. Next thing the comandante, man, I know they killed him. Something going on, I gotta read the signs. Something telling me that it's about that time. Time to step it up, cause I still smell sulfur. Still smell the money in this capitalist culture. I'm dedicating verses to my boy Jamil. He out there in Venezuela, our front line is real. Hunts Point, New York, 2005. That's when I realized the revolution's so alive. We ain't never had a president come around mine. He brought oil for the poor in the wintertime. He showed love to the Bronx. Let's call solidarity, we show love back Ain't no politicians scaring me, anti-imperialist Till I go delirious, the work is getting serious That's why they keep fearing us Do the mathematics, Hugo go Chavez, who's the baddest? I gotta work like Chavez Do the mathematics, Hugo go Chavez, was the baddest? I gotta work like Chavez Yo, in Caracas And in Chicago Yo, in the South Bronx El proceso va Forward, this movement, la lucha sigue. Dentro de todos esa rebeldía existe. La CIA comete crimen, igual las ideas viven. Aquí el pueblo decide, no lo que los medios dicen. Quieren parar una cultura alternativa. Fíjate, desde el Bronx hasta América Latina. Capitalistas van, capitalistas vienen, buscan tus bienes, quieren hacer lo que quieren. Ahora decimos no, no al imperialismo, neoliberalismo, los bancos, los ricos. Ni un millonario, Chávez fue solidario, Ni Bush ni Obama llegaron a ayudarnos. No lo olvidamos más que Venezolano. Esto es nuestra frontera. Hijo Bolivariano, América Unida. ¿Cómo creamos este frente? Solidaridad por todo el continente. Yo mathematics, Hugo Chavez, I gotta work like Chavez. Yo mathematics, Hugo Chavez, Justo Vález. I gotta work like Chavez. Yo en Caracas, el en el Chicago. El Pa Yo in the processo va palante. They processo
0: va palante. and we're back here on Counterpunch Radio I'm chatting with Rachel Boothroyd Rojas and Lucas Corner we're talking Venezuela so much to discuss I don't know that we'll fit it all into 1 hour but uh I, I before we before we uh went to break we were talking a little bit about the connections between the right wing in the United States that is the right well it's not really only the right wing but certainly finance capital and uh, the various right wing players but in the United States their connections to what's going on in Venezuela and one of the things that I think is too Often overlooked is the role of the, uh, the, call it, for lack of a better word, the 1% in Venezuela, the the capitalists, the owners of the distribution networks, the owners of the factories, the owners of the large scale capitalist industries. These people, uh, they are directly responsible for a lot of the hardship that people in Venezuela are facing. Things like commodity shortages and many other uh, aspects of this crisis can be traced back to them. So, can you explain a little bit how that works? How the artificial scare is created and why it's created and what and what impact that has
2: yeah i mean uh, you know it's important to start off by understanding that venezuela virtually imports uh everything that it consumes you know from medicines to food um basically you know that's been the case since the beginning of the 20th century um basically because other you know other productive sectors couldn't oil economy um so you know venezuela imports um Goods and so you know traditionally the bourgeoisie here has been an importer bourgeoisie. Um, now the, the you know the government actually has set up this system whereby in an, in an attempt to control kind of imports and you know due to also its control uh, its currency uh, exchange mechanisms, where it actually grants um, subsidized dollars to um, basically importing businesses in order to import what the country needs. Um, and this is basically uh you know laid the groundwork um, for you know massive um, importer fraud um so the, you know there's a huge case for instance of the government granting these businesses um uh, you know huge vast amounts of government subsidized dollars and then the you know these businesses do not um do not actually use these dollars to import the items um, which you know which you know they're meant to import, and um, you know in particular we can see this with the um with the you know the pharmaceutical um, sector. So there is a you know Venezuelan researcher an economist called Manuel Sutherland, and he um you know he's basically done a lot of research around this, and he says that between you know 1998 and 2013 there was a, you know a huge um uh, increase uh, in the amount of um state expenditure on medicines for instance this went up from 222 million dollars in 1998 to 3.2 billion uh dollars in 2013 while the actual bulk quantity of medicines decreased by 75 percent um so i mean that's how you can see that this um you know the shortages are basically because the you know the government subsidised um, you know US dollars are not being used to import what the country really needs. Um, I mean this is obvious. These are you know these are capitalist businesses. They're looking how they can uh, make a profit. <laughs> this is obviously a very profitable um, uh, profitable business. The, there's also been other kind of um, instances uh, that the government has exposed um, you know over the past couple of years of um, supermarkets, um, or food storage kind of warehouses, which have literally been, um, creating what they called false, um, false shortages. And that's where they deliberately hoard, um, items, um, and they don't put them on sale to the public. So the government would find like a huge kind of stash, um, of, you know, items. Such as like maybe toothpaste or the pan which is used to make arepas here, um, cornbread um things that people use on a daily basis and you know it's being deliberately um, withheld um, from uh, from Venezuelan people i mean we can see something uh, there was similar kind of strategies used um you know against um, allende in chile um so, and so there's you know so there's definitely those. Those are kind of when um, those are kind of the strategies, the economic strategies being used against the government, Um, the associated. um, There's also a campaign, you know, internationally um, against Venezuela uh, not to be lent credit. Basically, um, recently, the Associated Press um, reported on who's uh, Julio Borges, who's a member and um, prominent leader in the First Justice Party, um, he's currently the acting head of the uh, country's National Assembly. He's actually uh, was in letters to um, international banks, encouraging them not to provide financial services or credit to the Venezuelan government, um, and basically saying, if you know, you, if you do this, you should know that your reputation will be tarnished. Um, so these are, you know, opposition uh, figures and legislators who blame the, uh, the government for the economic crisis, but, you know, are doing absolutely nothing to alleviate the, uh, the crisis. On the contrary, they're actually trying to worsen it and, and you know, turn Venezuela into a into a pariah kind of state that nobody is willing to uh, to lend credit to, even when the government has. Um, and I think you know maybe it can be criticized if this gone to great lengths to pay um, its external debt in spite of this huge collapse in uh, in oil prices.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, hey, been a,
0: that's been a bone of contention for a while. Go ahead, Lucas. Sorry.
1: No, no, I was just going to say that I think that the the uh, the companies that are receiving the state dollars in order to import are almost completely large transnational
0: firms yeah
1: and that this has honestly been perhaps one of the errors we can say of the government which has been to basically rely on you know entities and agents which you know are the natural enemies of any kind of transformative process you know basically to import all class of goods and when we look at the for example the last release statistics from 2013 of um uh, allocations for petrodollars um you saw that of the four of five state dollars were allocated to, you know, basically uh, were allocated to, you know, transnational firms to to the, some of these, these large, um, you know, top 100 companies. That you know, so basically, and this is not just the question of the import sector. This is also the question as Rachel was alluding, the retail sector is also completely in the hands of. You know, basically private capital, though not transnational, more you know, medium to large scale capital. You know, and so this is you know the really the problem is that while you did see a democratization of oil wealth, of oil rents, you did not see a fundamental transformation in you know the the, the mechanisms of distribution and and ownership of you know the means of production in that respect. And
0: Yeah, that's always been, that's always been one of the knocks on the Bolivarian Revolution was that it was kind of, uh, you know, that it, that it didn't go all the way as far as nationalizing the key industries, in particular, uh, distribution networks and things like that. Of course, it's, as always, a little bit more complicated than that because of Chavez's, uh, you know, difficult position of whether or not to move forward with the poverty alleviation programs at the outset of the Bolivarian Revolution or to lay the groundwork first and leave that till later obviously in retrospect we can uh you know we can point to any number of decisions that turned out to be not the best decisions but i do think that the that the reality of what's happening uh in venezuela needs to be understood in the broadest economic terms and uh just to give one brief anecdote when i was in venezuela in december of 2015 i had a chance to sit down with a well-respected economist and former uh representative of venezuela at the united nations uh and uh, he was talking about the economic crisis and one example he gave that i thought was poignant he said that uh there's a large factory uh and i don't remember exactly where but a large factory that accounted for something like 75 percent of the processed chicken that was consumed in venezuela meaning pa- you know uh, uh butchered and packaged and, and distributed and sold and uh that uh, that the that the owners of the factory essentially continued to employ the workers and paid them not to produce chicken and thereby creating a chicken shortage in the country. I think this was like 2013 or so. And uh, that this was something that ha- actually had happened across a number of sectors, a number of industries, and that that was playing a very big role in a lot of the scarcity that you saw in Venezuela. Uh, so can you comment a little bit on that and on how these uh, distribution networks remaining in the hands of the elites is really one of the critical um, weak points of the Venezuelan state?
1: I guess to, I guess it's important to recognize that this is not, you know, necessarily, you know, conspiratorial activity. This is just rational economic activity, you know, on the part of these firms. That in Venezuela, you know, the, the game is not to employ workers to produce goods, you know, to extract their surplus value and make a profit. In Venezuela, the game is to extract, you know, oil rents. Through you know basically any means possible, largely through whether it's fraud or corruption or uh, whatever it will be, and I think that the problem with you know so we have to kind of change, we have to stretch our analysis to understand you know a dependent you know rentier capitalism that is Venezuela that exists in Venezuela, and you know I think that the key point there is that is that these these firms. You know, basically, it's not just a question of not. You know, basically, you know, we have the the traditional, you know, leftist, you know, vision in the global north that we have to um, nationalize the strategic heights of the economy and take them over and subject them to workers' control. But you know, what do you do in a country which basically, you know, the primary, you know, mode of uh, appropriation of Value is not, you know, surplus value. The the, the class struggle is not over the appropriation of surplus value, but it's over oil rent. And and that's centered in the petro state. And basically Chavez, yes, nationalized, you know, the, know, the, the source of oil wealth. And he really just for the first time. But, you know. Fundamentally speaking, what Chavez, the vision of Chavez, has been the same as the vision of you know Venezuelan um, governments for the past you know at least sixty or seventy years. That is to sow you know the sembrada de to sow the oil, to invest the oil and product in production. And the problem is that structurally, you know, the way the global economy is set up and in Venezuela's insertion into it is not. Designed for that, you know, it, it's you know the way Dutch disease works, in which basically oil production doesn't, you know, oil booms do not create the opportunities for you know investing in production, rather they actually end up weakening those sectors, draining the value, you know, invested in those sectors. So what you had was when Chavez came to power in 1998, you had 89 percent of you know the account of the um, country's foreign currency earnings came from oil, but in um, you know, by the current period, it's over 90%, reaching a height of of 96%. So I mean, I just, and of course, this is not unique to Chavez, this is not a result necessarily of his policy. The same thing happened during the, you know, the boom of the 1970s under Carlos Andres Perez. But it just goes to show you this something that is structural and, you know, peripheral economies and Venezuela being, you know, a extreme example of it, but the same thing you have in Bolivia to some degree and in Ecuador is how do you make the transition? And, you know, I think the key, we're, we're actually approaching a moment in which, you know, perhaps, you know, paradoxically in this very difficult time of structural chaos in the world system, in which perhaps we're in the moment of transition to another world system that might be a, you know, post-capitalist one for better or for worse, that Venezuela with the, you know, oil prices are not going to rise in this post-conventional petroleum world, that perhaps this, you know, a a transition to a post-oil economy could be possible for the first time and over a century. We don't know what that would look like, but hopefully it will take more emancipatory forms.
2: Yeah, I mean, I actually just, you know, to give you a quick example of that, I was actually in, in Beval, um which is a worker-controlled factory about a month ago, just outside of Caracas, um, in Los Teques. And they, this worker-controlled factory, um, basically produces or builds the kind of the huge valves used by PDVSA uh, in oil extraction. Um, now, they've already, since they, you know, they came under worker control, um, which I think was in 2007, although I could be wrong, but they've there's been, they've been, a, you know, long time under worker control, at least 10 years. Um, they, they have found it extremely difficult, um, you know, to, to actually produce, because under the, you know, under the government, the, they, you know, and they will tell you this themselves, they, they'd always been told, well, we prefer to import the valves from abroad. Um, and, you know, and unfortunately, this is, you know, this is because um, there's so much oil wealth, the, you know, the, like Lucas said, um, the, you know, the priority is to is to import. Um, and there's also kind of within this, there is, a, you know, a system of government uh, kickbacks basically as well. So if you, you know, if you are able to take a slice out of the pie of the you know, government dollars every time that you import something, um, then that's a very lucrative business. And it's very difficult to to move away from that if you happen to be high up. Um, as a government functionary there. Now, there has been a change in that um, over the past year, uh, and they were, you know, I visited them and I saw the factory more alive than ever. I, you know, and I've been there about three or four times, you know, and I, you know I, and I asked them, you know, why, you know, everybody's working all of a sudden, like before, that was really difficult. They couldn't find work, um, they were getting a state. Um, wage every month, but basically production was nothing. And all of a sudden, they're, they're producing, and they're, you know, and they're actually recycling valves. And they said basically that the order now from the government is to, um, is to, is to recycle previous valves. And the the order now is zero, um, is zero imports. And so, you know, maybe like Lucas said, because of this economic crisis, we can actually see a glimpse into uh, what would be a new economy that isn't. Um, as reliant on oil and where, you know, production is part of uh, Venezuela's economy. But that's just one example of, that, of how, you know, like actually this, you know, this worker controlled factories actually found renewed purpose, um, you know, at the root of the crisis.
0: Well, I think that there is a precedent for what you're describing and it's certainly not a perfect parallel and there it, it can be problematic in some ways, but uh what Cuba went through in the post-Soviet period I think is at least to some degree instructive here where Cuba uh to a large degree was dependent upon imports from the Soviet Union from the socialist uh you know from from countries in the socialist world and then all of a sudden quite literally overnight that kind of dissolved and Cuba found itself well literally and figuratively an island unto itself uh and uh, over the course of at least 15 years Cuba really struggled with the move towards something more akin to self-sufficiency but uh you know in the retrospective uh you know from a retrospective analysis i think that in in a lot of ways that really did benefit cuba in the long run and i think similarly there could be uh that silver lining for venezuela
2: yeah, I mean, hopefully that's the case. Like I said, there are a, there are a few examples that that, you know, that that's a possible kind of horizon or a possible outcome. Certainly a lot of social movements have been, you know, even before the crisis, but I'd say with kind of renewed vigor um since we, you know, since the economic a crisis really hit Venezuela, you know, to produce through huge kind of rural social movements who are pushing for um, production, who are pushing for the government to nationalize these, you know, these distribution channels. Um, And so, you know, there's, you know, the government's given no indication either way over what it will do there. Um, But, you know, there is movement um, to move towards that. There's definitely organization with that. In mind and I think I'd say that national production um, for people is possibly the forefront of kind of rural rural workers struggles uh, at the moment yeah I
1: think that's a wonderful point people aren't waiting necessarily for the state to, mm-hmm. for, to make this happen that, yeah. you know, I mean you're seeing um, kind of grassroots efforts you know to break the stranglehold of um, private retail chains where people are forging direct um, producer um, consumer relationships with um, different uh, producers in the countryside, I'm part of an experiment. It's called the Albergada Solidaria, and basically, it's a you know group of 180 families that buy um, food mm-hmm. and uh, produce directly from a basically the Venezuela's oldest network of cooperatives in Lara State, Seco Sesona um and you know basically every month um it's all organized from below and the money is pooled, and the truck comes and you know it's all efforts by basically people volunteering and taking on different roles and you know it's a very interesting experiment and i think the same thing is you know being replicated on the you know on the level of you know within the communes and then with um communal councils that are beginning to you know I would say by, by necessity and by their own impulse, kind of innovate, you know, to, um, you know, produce for, you know, and of course this is concentrated in the regions that are traditionally, you know, had produced, that traditionally retain a relationship to um, agriculture. But you know, you do see example of, uh, excuse me, a, a bakery that was um, just taken over by a communal council that's actually very in downtown Caracas, very close mm-hmm. to where we are right now. That. Um, the bakery was basically, you know, we have. A, there's a big problem in that, that basically, the the price of bread is subsidized. A basic loaf of bread is subsidized. However, the and in fact, they these bakeries receive um, flour at subsidized rates in order to produce it, um, but they have to sell it at the price control rate. And instead of doing so, they 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 produce only a certain amount of that bread, and they they use the rest of the flour to produce all kinds of other baked goods, which they can sell at higher prices. And this results in large lines to buy bread, you know, when they could be producing bread all day and there would be no lines. So this one bakery, La Menca, has um, actually increased massively. It's the cheapest bread they claim. You know, I, I think it's like you know, very, like 220 bolivares, uh, you know, a loaf, which is extremely cheap. Um, and they've upped their their production to over 6,000 loaves a day, which is you know very impressive, and it just shows you what popular power can do um, in breaking the you know stranglehold of you know private capital.
0: I want to ask you um, a little bit about the role of other countries in the region. Uh, well, specifically those that border or you know share a you know common geographic area with Venezuela. And in my mind, I'm thinking of places in particular like Colombia, but to a lesser extent, some of the islands, uh, the Caribbean islands off the coast of Venezuela, where you see that a lot of the goods that really uh, are and should be bound for store shelves in Venezuela, finding their way into Colombia, into Trinidad. Into places like that, where they're sold at a at a at a nice little profit for those who are selling them. So you have you have uh, stories of people, uh, you know, taking you know pennies pennies worth of oil uh, from Venezuela, which is a lot, where where oil is very very cheap, bringing it across the border, selling it for a massive profit, turning around and taking their uh, Venezuelan currency, exchanging it, using barter, all kinds of methods of black market, uh, you know. Economic economic activity, which, as you were alluding to earlier, Lucas, is really just kind of rational self-interest within this this context. But I want you to talk a little bit, if you could, about the role of this draining of Venezuela's resources, draining of currency, draining of goods and commodities out of the country. So on the one hand, we have the hoarding, we have the the lack of distribution, as we were talking about earlier, but we also have a concerted campaign uh, of essentially Depriving Venezuela of goods.
1: I think that with regard to you know, this phenomenon there's a Venezuelan word for it. It's called bachaqueo. It refers to um you know big ants basically who take, you know, these goods on their back and you know basically steal them from the public. And you know, this phenomenon really, you know, um I was uh, mushroomed in twenty fifteen where you had basically the government policy of um, basically providing indirectly subsidizing the price of you know key goods and providing them to people in massive open air markets in which people had to wait in long lines order to buy these goods you know whether it's arena pan or it's cooking oil or what have you and uh, this obviously was this policy was a failure and you know I met many i think in the government and the socialist party saw this policy as one of the key factors that led to their, you know, landslide defeat in the December 2015 parliamentary elections. And it was subsequently, you know, and also you were seeing, you know, um, you know, massive unrest and you were, you were in, by in May, 2016, in the city of Kumaná, you know, basically was, you know, looted and saw day three days or two days of looting, you know, massive unrest. So this was kind of the response of the government was the policy of the clubs and, you know, the, the local, Production and provision committees or supply committees, which um, basically is a kind of a government a partnership between the the government, you know, particularly the Ministry of Communes and local communal councils, to provide um, essential goods directly out on you know ideally on a frequent week by weekly basis. You generally it's more like a month. Um, and this 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 policy definitely has worked much better than the. The previous policy of indirect subsidies and open air markets, and you know, I think Rachel has has received at least three um, clap boxes um, yeah. since November, or which you know, in, in, in this apartment building, I've noticed that they've received at least two or three. Um, also in that period, something like over fifty percent of the population has said they benefited from it. You know, the, though it's still um, you know. It's still not as frequent as people would like, and you know, it's still you know largely it's been criticized by some on the left as being still kind of a top-down program that doesn't really um, kind of respect the existing kind of bottom-up spokespeople structures of leadership that have characterized them as well as popular movements. So there's there's definitely contradictions with it, but that has meant that there is not to answer your question that that the you don't have the same policy of basically flood of these, you know, massive open air markets where you had people being paid to wait in line. You know, at that point in 2015, you had like some 80 percent of people waiting in line for these goods were actually people who are paid to do so, so that these goods could be resold in the black market. So in many, so because you don't, you no longer have those goods just being tossed onto the market that in that way, I. I don't think that you're seeing the same kind of contraband to goods of these of these goods to Colombia and the Caribbean as you did see before. Though I mean I haven't seen statistics of that, and I could be wrong. But I will say that I can say that the Venezuela does continue to massively subsidize the price of gasoline, and as a result, you do see um, you know vast contraband of gasoline to Colombia and to Brazil. And, you know, this is a, a, a huge problem. And, you know, the, the government has been criticized, you know, both on the left and the right, you know, really for failing to, um, increase the price of gasoline because it, you know, it fears, you know, the, the 1989 Caracaso, the shadow of the Caracaso, which is triggered by the, um, I think it was it like a 200% increase in transportation fares that was triggered by the increase, you know, we're looking, the same thing is happening in Mexico right now. Yeah.
0: I was just going to say Mexico, you can, they could, they could look at Mexico for an example of the danger for the government in, in doing that
1: completely. And you know, the the issue is that you, 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 with a smart policy, they could avoid that, you know, because given that the gasoline subsidy largely benefits people with cars who tend to be more middle-class So that they could, you know, perhaps increase, you know, that moderately for more middle class people while, you know, perhaps not increasing it, you know, or, you know, maintaining it constant for um, public transportation, which would avoid such a eventuality as in Mexico. But, you know, that's another debate.
0: My last question on economic issues, and then i I, I want to touch on one or two other things before we wrap up. Uh, my last question on the economics has to do with the currency and I want to get your analysis the uh, extent to which uh, speculation against the bolivar has uh, played a role in um, you know debasing the currency and in, in causing this inflation now obviously, inflation and hyperinflation are the product of many economic factors, not simply one but one that I think is so often overlooked is the role of large-scale financial interests speculating against the bolivar doing it both inside the country and especially outside the country from places like miami where you have wealthy people who are putting out information about the currency that driving down the value and so forth so can we talk a little bit about both domestic and international forces that have had a negative impact on the bolivar on the venezuelan currency
1: yeah, I mean, I think that you know, basically referring to Dollar Today, which is the private, you know, Miami-based website that publishes um, basically a black market or information on the black market rate in Venezuela, which it bases on the the Cucata rate in Colombia, the the, the the currency changing houses in Colombia, um, and this, you know, basically the government has claimed that the, that basically. This, this website um, and other such actors in Colombia and the United States are responsible for um, basically driving, you know, devaluing the Venezuelan currency. And I, I think that, you know, there definitely, you know, clearly is speculation against the Venezuelan Bolivar. I mean, again, I'm not an economist, so I don't fully understand the way that, International financial, you know, currency markets speculate on the price of currency, in which you know. But I, I can imagine that that is, you know, absolutely to the um, detriment of Venezuela's bolivar. Though I mean, I do think that there is, you know, the Venezuelan government's, you know, his fiscal policy has also contributed to a good deal and a, and a you know, to a broad extent to the current, you know, inflationary, um, depreciation cycle, as Mark Weisbrot has described it, in which basically. You know, you have the government continuing to um, print money, in which, in turn, you know, basically to finance Perevesa's debt, you know, basically, Perevesa continuing to sell. It's dollars, you know, being obligated to sell its dollars at the, you know, su- highly subsidized rate of 10, you know, in contrast to 10 bolivars a dollar, in contrast to the black market rate of nearly 5,000 bolivars a dollar. And, you know, they, this is basically meant that, you know, continuing to allocate these dollars at subsidized rates, particularly to um, private actors and, you know, including the subsidized rate of, um you know, for example, for key food imports other things, you know, instead of perhaps selling them at the the you know the the floating or supposed to be floating simadi rate of you know around seven hundred, and this has had consequences. And that there have been a number of economists within Venezuela, along with my, uh, Mark Weisbrot, who have called for you know that of unifying the exchange rates as you know kind of the best strategy to really counteract the the the, I w- I w- the, the um, Basically, the capital flight that is associated with these state dollars being, as we mentioned earlier, allocated to these transnational firms who are basically just um, putting them in their pockets instead of importing anything, that really this – that by unifying the exchange rate at – you know, at the floating 700 rate instead of you continue to use a subsidized lower rate of 10, which is just a temptation to, you know, basically commit import fraud, that this would be a, a strategy to um, improve the economic situation. I personally don't think that this is a silver bullet. I think that it's much more complicated than that. Um, but I, I think it's it's definitely something to consider that clearly Venezuela's you know, Labertine um, exchange rate system where you have you know, in the past, you've had in the past over five different exchange rates um, that now you have really basically two that, you know, it it has been a failure to, um, you know, basically control inflation in in the recent period. But I think, again, the point, the key point with, you know, why inflation has has really spiked right now has been, in many cases, the decline of, you know, the price of oil that the Venezuelan government simply does not have, The petrodollars to sell them at a lower subsidized rate, which it did previously, that would certainly bring down the um, it would certainly, you know, defeat the kind of the speculative efforts because all of these economic actors could just buy dollars from the government at this at the subsidized rate. And, you know, they would there there would be no reason to recur to the black market, which would lose its its value and the value of the Bolivar would, you know, would, would stabilize
0: well, and, and, the, and the reason I bring this up is not simply to try to diagnose why there's inflation, although obviously that's an important question. It's to point out the political and the social reality of what that, how that actually translates, because of course, nothing will drive a person more quickly to abandon a political project than if they watch their savings evaporate over the course of three years. You know, nothing will drive a person into the streets quicker than feeling, uh, you know, in a state of economic precarity because you know you had saved all of these bolivars and you're increasingly watching them become uh less and less uh worthwhile to hold so uh i think that there is a a a social implication to the attack on the currency and that's really something that i think needs to be examined
2: yeah no and definitely that dynamic that you mentioned that's been mentioned by mark weisbrot as well and he he also um notes that's kind of like a driving force behind the um you know, behind the kind of devaluation of the Bolivar, the fact that you know it's a cycle that the, the as the Bolivar kind of devaluates um, the middle classes um, and the upper classes, you know they you know they see that there's no point um, saving in um, in Bolivars, so they rush to buy dollars um, again on the black market that pushes the um, the price um, up, um, and you know this is this, this kind of like this the spiral basically, but in terms of um, of ordinary people. Um, you know, Venezuela has not really had a, a culture of um, saving, um, really, because, I mean, inflation has always been relatively high in terms of, you know, international kind of standards. Um, you know, you think Chavez got it down to around about, what was it, about 20 percent? It was like 30
1: percent constantly.
2: Yeah. Um, so there's not really been that culture really to save um and you know even though the government has tried to um has tried to encourage uh, encourage that through various kind of mechanisms such as setting up public banks um etc so um yeah you know this is is definitely a spiral which um, you know affects people i'd say maybe not so much in terms of people's savings but certainly when you go to the supermarket and maybe the you know your wages which two weeks ago um could purchase you know um, x y and z and like two weeks, three weeks later, they can no longer purchase them um, and the, you know that is a you know a direct result of this kind of devaluation of the boulevard and I think that's you know that's been incredibly. Um, you know, damaging um, to, you know, to working class people. Um, And, you know, I think that's like Lucas said in 2015, that's, you know, that's what most led, you know, or at least the government sees it in that way to their, you know, to their defeat um, in the legislative elections uh, in December. But you're deadly right. There are huge political and uh, social implications to this um, devaluation. So you could certainly, you know, argue that it's it's, um, certainly kind of, you know, it's aimed at working class people. You know, I think, which is what what you were alluding to. I can just say personally
1: that it's it's agonizing. It's really, it's you know, when you go to the market and every week, you know, the price of meat, you know, goes up like you know a thousand, two thousand bolivares. You know, it's it's really, you know, I mean, as an as a as one person, you know, like it's agonizing. But if you have to support a family, you know, it's really, you know, just so and you know, it's it's completely, you know, the the level of just I would say, you know. So, location and you know that's going on right now is you know quite you know understandable given this reality and I think that the term economic war is correct but this is I think we'll I would go farther it's a class war it's a class war mm-hmm. against working people in Venezuela the problem is that you know I would say that the government has not acted you know uh sufficiently you know to take the necessary radical measures to respond and in fact you know. The, the, the war is being lost as a result that you know there need to be radical measures to safeguard the living standards of working people in venezuela and you know if that does not happen then you know there's no way that the government can remain in power
2: on that point there are social movements who you know they say this you know there's a class war and it's also you know psychological warfare yeah. um that's people describe it you know this i mean last year it was it was the queues, um you know and and this year it's it's this you know the constant kind of inflationary kind of spiral uh you know like lucas said for for people with families it's it's extremely difficult and um you know it's kind of like uh Um, you know, war of attrition, really, isn't it? You know, like, um, just, you know, deliberately trying to exhaust people, um, because this is day to day, um, it's constant, and, you know, it, you know, it hasn't let up for three years now, um, so, uh, you you know, if you can just imagine that on a weekly basis, it's, um, it's extremely, extremely exhausting, extremely stressful for people, and, and that's why it is called, you know, psychological warfare. And,
0: and just to build, just to build on that point, uh, uh, another anecdote from my uh, time in Venezuela. You know, when I was going through the airport, the uh, air here in New York, the airport security took my sunscreen. Well, I'm a fair, fair skinned white boy in Venezuela, and I definitely need my sunscreen. And uh, I went to, I must have gone to every drugstore and every store that I came across in my entire time, and I never did get my hands on any sunscreen, and I never did find any deodorant. And, um... For me, on the one hand, you know, it wasn't such a big deal. I was able to cope with it, but it was only really two weeks of my life. I had to really sit and think, what if this was every day? What kind of an emotional and psychological toll would it take on me if every single day I was in search of this commodity or that staple good or that, you know, particular food stuff? It would be so exasperating to the point where, you know, I can almost understand how so many people are like, you know what, I don't even. And care about the politics anymore let's just get anything that will solve this crisis
2: yeah and i think actually you know um something that should be that should be mentioned that like you've just described that kind of scenario but in spite of that in spite of you know three years of this incredibly difficult kind of economic situation um, and this is something else you won't see mentioned in the mainstream um, press the government still actually does wield significant um support so um for instance the, the support for maduro um, probably on the back of some of these initiatives such as, as the clats and also the fact that these shortages have been um, alleviated i'd say you know since the beginning of the year the you know these products have reappeared on shop shelves but um but you know at very high prices but still people are kind of you know buoyed to so, um, you know, for these shortages to to have come to um, not an end, but certainly to have been alleviated. Um, Maduro's popularity has gone up to around 24.8 percent. Um, and actually, the you know, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela is still the biggest party uh, in Venezuela. It has something like 35 percent of Venezuelans still say um, or identify as members or supporters of um, the PSUV. Um, and that that was just um, that was just in an independent poll conducted by hinterlaces in in March, which is generally considered to be an independent um, pollster. Um, so I think, you know, that gives you kind of an an idea of just how resilient the Venezuelan people are um, to, you know, to put up with this for three years now. Um, and like you said, like this, this, this constant economic and psychological warfare. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's a really important uh, point to make.
1: Yeah, I just want to stress one thing that I think that I, I, I don't want to suggest. I don't think that the inflation itself is coming that is completely induced or that there's, you know, by these, you know, conspiratorial or external actors. I think that that's a complicated logic, but I do think that we can say with confidence that, you know, the overall, you know, economic situation in Venezuela is being, you know, exacerbated, you know, consciously by external and internal actors. And, you know, Rachel gave the example of the of the president of the National Assembly writing to these banks to um uh to convince them to refuse to lend to Venezuela. But you also saw what um basically you know when you look at Venezuela's the the risk rating for Venezuelan bonds, which you know basically is incredibly high, you know without any reason because Venezuela has an impeccable record of repaying its creditors. It's an oil producer. Um, yet the risk ratings are incredibly high, and Venezuela had great difficulty last year negotiating a debt swap to um, kind of push some of its debt to be paid this year to, um, uh, fe- to future years. Um, and you, know, you also saw this with the case of you know, the city, city group resigning in its position as Venezuela's bond agent last year, last summer – which is an unprecedented move you know it's been seen that you can resign as, as, you know to, to refuse to continue to carry out your contractual obligations as an international financial entity is something that's very grave and unprecedented and the former Bank of America Merrill Lynch economist Francisco Rodriguez has you know basically said that this is you know directly you know "Quote unquote," invariably influenced by U.S. foreign policy, and you know that has to do with President Barack Obama's um, declaring Venezuela a neutral and extraordinary threat to U.S. national security, and you know uh, renewing that uh, in 2016, and then renewing it this year in January before he left office. Um, this has real implications for the activity of international financial institutions. I mean, let's compare Venezuela to you know Saudi Arabia or you know. Nigeria, which are also major oil producers in the midst of a deep economic crisis, but you don't have nearly the level of, you know, social and, you know, economic seeing in those countries, I mean, largely due to the fact that they can cushion their fall with um, massive international loans. Um, And I think that that that's an important variable. And, you know, what you're seeing, I would say, in my opinion, the overall sense is that what what these actors are seeking to do, you know, both internally and externally is to punish Venezuela and to punish its people for having dared to challenge the Washington consensus and attempt to, you know, think of, you know, to imagine a world beyond, you know, US hegemony and beyond
0: capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of a lot of uh complicated factors I think go into this. Now in the t- in the just a few minutes we have remaining, I want to touch on uh one other issue and that well actually two other issues. One domestically has to do with uh, uh destabilization and infiltration, because one of the things that we have seen really going back to the early days of Chavez, but especially in the last five to six years, has been the role of uh particularly Colombian paramilitaries or call them death squads or whatever you want to call them that infiltrate into the country that do things like carry out assassinations, uh, that are in, in various ways connected to, uh, organized crime, uh, drug trafficking. A lot of the things that are going on, uh, in, in Colombia, in Venezuela, in the region generally. And I remember when I was going through, uh, the neighborhood known as January 13, uh, you know, and talking to some of the people who work there who would tell us about uh, the, the the young Chavista, Robert Serra, who was brutally murdered uh, just a few years ago, considered one of the shining stars of the Socialist Party. Similarly with, uh, uh, I forget his first name, I think it was Ricardo or maybe Roberto Duran, who was a journalist and uh, a prominent Chavista. There have been a number of, of very uh, significant, particularly younger uh, Chavistas who have been assassinated over the, uh, the last few years. That raises the question, of is this partially a means of undercutting the socialist party and undercutting the maduro government but also in creating a chilling effect in new generations who may have some inclination towards political life but who fear maybe for their own safety so can you comment a little bit about uh, the role that assassinations have played in the political climate and where colombia and alvaro uribe and his networks fit into that
2: yeah, I mean, I think this is a really important point because it can be difficult for people maybe in the U.S. Um, and Europe to kind of get their heads around. Um, there have been a lot of assassinations of, um, you know, of Chavista activists, you know, over these past 18 years, really. Um, they've, in fact, they've only, in the last week, I think there have been two. Um one of a trade unionist in barinas and uh, you know bolivar. a pro uh, sorry in bolivar a pro government trade unionist in bolivar um and another grassroots leader in Valles del tuy which is just outside of caracas um you know and you know this is something that's not picked up on uh, by the mainstream press but it's um you know it certainly is by venezuelan social movements um you know since chavez and the you know the venezuelan revolution came to power i think you know the from two thousand to onwards Uribe was um you know has been on the doorstep there and he's you know proclaimed himself to be you know he's totally anti communist um a, totally um you know a, you know ultra right in Colombia and you know he has certainly um got well documented links uh you know i think to you know paramilitary um, organizations,
0: um, and, and if I could add, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but I just want to <laughs> add for listeners. Uh, and in addition to that, documented links to Bill and Hillary Clinton, documented links to George Bush, to basically each and every uh, uh, major power broker in Washington is very in various ways is directly connected to Uribe, who acts as essentially like the mafia Don of Colombia.
2: Yeah, no, I mean these, you know, you know, even in WikiLeaks, I think there was some. I mean, not to go into Uribe's um, dark past, but you know, the, the you know, Uribe has got <laughs> documented links to to paramilitary organisations and um, you know, drug smuggling operations, and he's been consistently let off the hook by uh, Washington over and over again. And we actually saw that, you know, if reports are to believe, be believed, that he actually went to try and lobby President Trump uh, very recently. I think about two weeks ago um, against the Maduro uh, government. So he is, you know, literally on the on Venezuela's doorstep and he still is, he's still, you know, very, very powerful politician and um, popular politician, unfortunately, uh, in Colombia. Um, you know, his party is extremely popular. And so he's set about since the beginning of um of, of you know the Bolivarian revolution come into power um you know undermining it and that does that has translated to what you know social activists here call the paramilitarization uh, of Venezuela. And actually, you know, I think something that, that people need to take into account is that, you know, s- since the government has tried to affect kind of, um, leftist, you know, change, socialist changes within Venezuela, um, you know, lots of government ministers, lots of government, um, lots of grassroots leaders have received death threats. Um, this is, you know, the head of Venezuela's, uh, security missions have received, you know, horrendous phone calls. They've received, you know, horrendous kind of, Pictures and threats have been sent to them, but this is even um, people in ministries that aren't even considered to be key, you know, such as the Ministry of um, the Environment. Um, they've received death threats, um, and there have these been these consistent kind of um, you know assassinations of chavista uh, leaders throughout the past 18 years and also these you know these paramilitary organizations are very kind of active um, on the border with you know with Colombia as well and um, there are these huge mafias dedicated to um, basically fuel smuggling um, and you know a vast array of other kind of criminal activities and they were actually involved in food smuggling like um, like Luca said in 2015 um, you know the border is you know it's extremely extremely dangerous and it's you know ex- there are these you know armed groups very well financed um and so that has been kind of a, a you know the reality um you know since uh, the Bolivarian revolution uh came to power um you know and and like either of these like Luke said I think that you know Oribe has links to um Henrique Capriles Radonsky who is the leader of the Justice uh, First Party also to Leopoldo Lopez um, there was actually um in 2014 Laurent Saleh was um you know a young kind of um right-wing uh Organiser who was, you know, arrested here, and he had, you know, he was actually um, arrested, and he, w- he had managed to somehow gain. He was arrested in in um, Colombia, I think, and he was actually managed to gain access to a military train um, a university there, um, and he had huge links to Oribe, and he was, you know, arrested by the by the government for basically planning out a string of attacks. Uh, in Venezuela, and this is this is i mean there are no other I mean, terrorism is a very politicized term, and obviously because of that you i 'd be kind of loath to use it but it 's difficult to think of another term um, for what 's going on here because the the idea is to is to sow terror within the population and um actually i 'm just In, you know, in relation to these two government workers who were, you know, assassinated last Monday. I'm just translating a statement from some of their communal councils and they recognize this, you know, they say that this is deliberately aimed at striking fear into the heart of people who are organizing. Um, for socialism organizing, um, you know, in various expressions of popular power across the country. Um, you know, and it's something that definitely needs to be taken into account because uh, the situation here is, is very different. Um, and it's a lot more dangerous, I'd say, for, for social activists, um, here because of that.
0: No doubt about it. Okay, we're 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 really up against the clock, so I I got to ask one final question because it's kind of a doozy, and uh, that has to do with uh, what we what we should expect in terms of the uh, foreign policy, or maybe a better way to say that would be the geopolitical imperatives. Uh, and what I'm really getting at here is the target that is clearly on the back of Venezuela with President Trump and with Secretary of State Tillerson, because of course now Exxon. Mobile is essentially directly in charge of U.S. diplomacy, in charge of the State Department. Obviously, with Rex Tillerson, they make no secret about their desire to affect regime change in Venezuela. Not only would that uh, achieve political ends, but it would have a significant impact on global oil prices, which, of course, would also bolster Tillerson and his pals. So I just want to uh, get your analysis of how we should uh, interpret the Trump administration's posture towards Venezuela, remembering that it was Barack Obama who called Venezuela an an existential national security threat or whatever exactly the term was that they used to justify the sanctions. So but it does seem that even that with Trump, it is escalating even further. So speak a little bit about uh, how you how you uh, envision Trump and Tillerson's policy towards Venezuela and what you expect in the coming uh, months and years.
1: Yeah, I think that we should first recognize, you know, a key escalation with the Trump administration with their um branding in February of Venezuelan Vice President Karek El-Aissami um, a, a, sanctioning him under the um, Foreign Narcotics Kingpin Act by the U.S. Tre- Treasury, basically freezing his alleged U.S. assets, which have not been shown to have any. Um, and also, you know, basically prohibiting him from traveling to the United States. You know, he's the highest level official, you know, in any place in the world to be sanctioned in this way. You know, and of course, the United States, as in the case of the justification for the Obama de- um, decree, um, has not provided any evidence to bolster its claims um, and its justifications. So that's clearly a, you know, I would say a departure from the o- more subtle posture, if we may use that word, in which they basically, while they did, you know, continually renew this decree, um, at the same time they they sent um, Thomas Shannon uh, frequently to Caracas to meet with the opposition and the government, and you know, it, it seemed my reading is that they, you know, at least you know there was a faction within the State Department headed by Shannon who did not want the gov- you know to depose the a bolivarian government for fear of the regional chaos that it would provoke um but there definitely you know has always been you know particularly the hillary clinton faction of the you know democratic party within the state um of the obama administration that were pushing for regime change um as you just alluded you know particularly with the clintons links to you know far right actors like alvaro rive so i think that what I, I think, unfortunately, you know what we might be seeing with the policy of the Trump administration, you know, as is the case in Syria and North Korea, is <clears throat> perhaps an escalation. You know, I mean, <clears throat> we should we should we should read Obama, the Obama administration's policy of the last eight years as you know an effort at you know the you know reconquest of lost terrain in Latin America, you know, and quite successful, you know, beginning with the 2009 coup against Manuel Salaya. You know, continuing through the coup in 2011 against Lugo and Fernando Lugo in Paraguay, and then following with the you know the, the defeat of the le- of the progressive left in Argentina, and then the coup in Brazil, and which has you know been quite you know the Obama administration has been quite successful and. Um, pushing back the pink tide um, through its efforts. But, I mean, it appears that the Trump administration is preparing to escalate this, and it's unclear whether they might be uh, preparing to actually, for more direct intervention. I mean, we saw that on, I think, April 6th or 7th, the U.S. Southern Command issued a statement, you know, basically expressing concern for the situation in Venezuela, calling it a destabilizing factor in the region. Um, and that came right before on April 8th, you saw, you know, the radicalization of the violent protests here in which, um, hundreds of, of, uh, opposition supporters and the wealthy Eastern municipality of Jakau attacked the, the offices, the executive offices of the Supreme court there, you know, damaging the exterior. Um, you know, so basically what, what you, you have this dynamic, you know, in which, the United States appears to be giving the green light to these extremely violent, you know, uh, fractions of the Venezuelan opposition that are bent upon, you know, regime change and are bent upon even, you know, terrorist activities in Venezuela and that they're feeding off each other and, you know, we don't know where this could go. Though I would say that. Clearly the Trump administration is very focused on its wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and hopefully not North Korea now. So I don't think that, you know, Venezuela is particularly a priority for the administration at this point. That does not mean that they're, you know, not continuing to actively promote, you know, Regime change efforts, both through their, you know, continually public statements, you know, legitimating the violence of the opposition. But also we should not forget the, you know, mil, you know multi-million dollar funding the United States provides to Venezuelan political opposition, political parties and different, you um, know, uh, different nonprofits, NGOs that, you know, go into training many of these very, you know, Venezuelan activists, you know, quote unquote. So, I mean, they clearly you know, regardless of whether there is a, you know, US boot on the ground that is visible or not, there is US imperialist intervention is a reality that must be combated, you know, by all, you know, leftist and progressive people in the world,
0: Absolutely. particularly in the United
1: States. Absolutely.
0: Um well, we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank you guys for coming on the show, Lucas Corner and Rachel Boothroyd Rojas, uh staff writers at Venezuela Analysis. Follow their work at venezuelaanalysis.com and uh you know, try to connect with them, uh, broaden your network and and publicize a lot of this uh information because at this point right now, uh solidarity is definitely needed with our uh brothers and sisters in Venezuela. So thank you Rachel and Lucas for the work you guys have been doing and for helping people to understand what's going on down there. Thanks
2: very much. No problem. Much.
1: I just want to say one, put in a quick plug for Counterpunch that I personally was you know politicized you know as a high school student reading Counterpunch and I really would encourage all listeners to um, make even a small contribution to keep that great publication going.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Lucas, thank you guys again for coming on the show. Listeners, thank you as always for tuning in and I'll chat with you again next week.